For several weeks now, we've been talking about the, uh, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. In particular, what the Bible has to say about suffering and the problem of evil. But of course, you know, the, the wisdom literature of the, the Hebrew scriptures, it explores more than just the problem of evil alone. Traditionally, these three books are thought to contain a great wealth of insight into what it means to live well in God's world. But there's a big problem. These three books that constitute the Hebrew wisdom literature, uh, Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, make up um, this, this specific collection. And in Proverbs, we find texts like this one. The fear of Yahweh adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. Okay, well that sounds straightforward enough. With that in mind, let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Look down at verse 15. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. So which of these two authors, both in the same Bible, is right? If you're, if you're making your way through the year-long Bible reading plan, and uh, do, you, do you believe and apply Proverbs in early June when we were reading it, and then you believe and apply Ecclesiastes a, a week later or whatever it is? So you're upbeat on the 4th, and then you're depressed on the 12th, and you have to you know, blame your mood swings on the Bible. Um, to better understand what the Hebrew wisdom literature is on the whole, let's talk a bit about what they're all about. So in addition to Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job, there's another book called The Song of Songs. It's got its whole other thing going on, uh, loosely connected to the wisdom literature because of King Solomon, who is also connected to Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. But Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes are three unified books with a unique set of features and ideas. And interestingly, the connection between the three is what they lack. So when you're reading through the story of the scriptures, the primary story arc, you're getting things like Abraham and the promised land and the covenant and the laws of the Torah and God's rescuing mission in the world and the temple and the Messiah and all these. And then you reach the wisdom literature and you realize all of the primary themes and motifs are suddenly absent. The wisdom literature steps away from the primary narrative in, in order to explore a, a different sort of questions, a different set of questions within the worldview of the Bible's story, sure, yeah, but it's not an expansion of the story. The story is affirmed, in essence, but it's never mentioned specifically, which is strange. And these, these books are authoritative in a unique way as well. So imagine, for instance, Moses. He's up on Mount Sinai. God speaks through Moses, and he writes something down, or he chisels it, or whatever, and you get stuff like, thou shalt, you know, the words of God. Or when the prophets speak, they speak on God's behalf, and you get, thus saith the Lord. But the wisdom books come at things from a more human-sounding approach. In Proverbs, they're framed as words from a father to a son. And the key line is, listen, my child, to your parents' instruction. In the wisdom books, the, the wise counsel and the thoughts and the sayings and the writings of people who love and follow Yahweh, uh, along with their accumula accumulated insight, are all compiled together. And these compilations make up the authoritative wisdom literature in this library of writings that's both human and divine that we call the Bible. And there's an interesting worldview affirmed by the wisdom literature as well, that God can and does speak through the wisdom of elders, or in this case of fathers and mothers and people with more experience. 
And I describe that as uh, interesting because it runs so contrary to 21st century Western thought in which the newest mode of thinking is always superior to the mode that preceded it. And that's not always a bad thing. You know, I, I usually encourage folks interested in biblical studies and theology to read more living authors than dead ones. Uh, and folks often say, why? Well, because with every passing year, we dig something out of the ground or we uncover a new papyri that sheds new light on the culture of the ancient Near East. And we know so much more about the world in which the Bible was drafted than ever before. And it's a sort of evolving area of study. This is a, a suggestion that sort of frustrates some of my more traditional friends who seem to think we figured out the Bible a few centuries ago and any new idea is horrifying and guilty until proven innocent, you know. Um, but of course, a point in their favor, uh, newer does not always equal better either. Just this year, get this, this is a real story. It's going to probably not fascinate you as much as it did me, but let's try it. Um, <laughs> They, uh, they, some archaeologists discovered some Babylonian uh, clay tablets that when they translated found that they were using this sophisticated geometry to track the motion of Jupiter uh, as early as 530 BC. And that's noteworthy because that's a thousand years earlier than we thought that math had first been developed. Uh, that's impressive, right? Babylonians, they had something going on, Jupiter or whatever. And what the heck is up with Stonehenge, man? You know? <laughs> That thing might be, you don't, you don't know, that thing might be as old as 3000 BC and no one agrees on how they made it or what, you know, what exactly it was for. I can barely put together a shelf from Ikea and these like 3000 year old ancient peoples were putting these rocks together and we're like, oh, maybe they did it this way. Um, so that's, that's a point in favor of the older. Uh, but even so, older is not always inherently better either. Uh, as recently as the 1800s, this German scientist, I looked this up this week, you'll love this, uh, German scientist Johann Christian Reil suspected an effective way of treating mental disorders was by means of what he called a cat piano. So the idea is that you, uh, <laughs> you build a piano and you situate cats rather than chords and the hammers strike the cats and they produce, you know, I, I suppose a, a painful melody of meows that would treat mental illness. And by the way, this is the gentleman who coined the term psychiatry. How about that? Uh, we, we still had barbers doing bloodletting as, as early or recently as the 19th century, man. You know that striped pole with the red and white around it is, is meant to symbolize or represent blood and bandages because we used to let barbers cut people open to bleed them out and treat illnesses that way. Get the blood out and surely the illness will go with it. Seriously, this is a real story as well. A few months ago, uh, I had coffee with a gentleman who lives uh, here in the city, actually. He's on the translation committee for both the NIV and the ESV translations of the Bible, which is a somewhat noteworthy uh, job, I think. And when I asked uh, how much a committee of this kind is faced with new issues, he said, all the time. Um, and he told me this story about how uh, in recent, the last two years, a recent discovery in the translation of ancient linguistics or whatever, they, that shed new light on this Hebrew word that before was slightly ambiguous, and it completely changed an entire story in Judges uh, chapter 3 or wherever it is. There's this, uh, what was once a fat character who gets a knife buried in his stomach and the fat closes over, they realize, oh, he wasn't fat at all. He was actually quite muscular. The word that we thought was fat was robust or strong, and now the story about a knife in the belly is really quite different, and the next translation is going to reflect that. Uh, the assumption that the wisdom literature has 
uh, in the culture that birthed the wisdom literature is that new ideas are suspect and old ideas are tested and trustworthy and reliable. So wisdom comes from experienced elders and entirely new notions are questionable at best. And that premise wasn't meant to be a hard and fast ethical rule. I mean, it was, it was owed largely in part to the fact that it was part of a culture that moved at a, a staggeringly slow uh, rate, not anything like the speed that we're familiar with. You know, how often have you set about to Google some answer to a problem that you're working with and you find an article and you start reading and you're like, oh, this will be great. And then you realize it's two years old and you're like, well, never mind, this thing's ancient. It doesn't have anything to say about anything. I need to, uh, you don't do that? Oh, man, that's just me. I get to it and I was like, 2016. Oh, that's, we're almost done with that. Um, the wisdom literature assumes the opposite. And together, these three books, Job, Ecclesiastes, and, and Proverbs, offer a sophisticated account of what it means to live well in God's world. But here's the catch. Reading them separately, apart from the shared context, offers a, a dangerously narrow understanding of wisdom. So to understand how these books complement one another, let's talk a bit about how we got them. So consider for a moment this timely bit of advice. Like one who grabs a stray dog by the ears is someone who rushes into a quarrel not their own. If I had a nickel for some, every time someone told me that. Now, you imagine an idiom like this one about a, jo a dog and its ears or whatever. It's, and you think, whoa, this found its way into this library of writings that we believe were inspired by God. So don't imagine some bearded sage that comes up and, you know, he's like guided by the spirit to go grab this dog's ears. And then he gets bitten and he's like, oh my goodness. He sits down and starts immediately, you know, being puppeteered by God to write this thing down about the dog and its ears and a quarrel. Um, instead, you know, imagine it the way that you would assume it would play out. Some yahoos sees a dog one day and he's petting it. This is my guess, by the way. It's, you know, and uh, he tousles its ears too hard and it bites him and he thinks, well, that's a bummer. And then later on, he's having an argument with someone and, hey, this reminds me of that time I got bit by a dog, kind of. And then the person sort of compares the two things to make a point. It develops into a saying and he passes it on to his kids and they pass it on to theirs and it, it sort of goes viral over time. Uh, in uh, 2009, this is the best way I can relate this to you, and I think it was 2009, uh, my friend Mike here, who's often plays in the band up here, Mike, you can look at him for reference if you like, uh, he sent this text message out to a group of us in which he misspelled the word crazy and he left a letter out and wrote cray, you know, C-R-A-Y, it was a mistake. And some of us were so tickled by this particular mistake, and which was not unique at all, I don't think this man has ever sent a text in his life that's missing typos. It's like, do you ever read these things before you, now you have to translate it, why not just write it better the first time? So anyway, he sends it, there's a word that's misspelled, we thought it was so charming that we started to introduce it into our own vernacular. You know, over time we'd say cray instead of crazy. Oh, it's so funny. Mike doesn't know how to type. It's hilarious. And to this day, no one will ever convince me. I don't care what you say. No one will ever convince me that Mike did not usher in a global phenomenon <laughs> by this misspelled text. It's like a year went by and we heard someone else say that and like, do you know Mike? And then like a, another few months went by. It's like, wow, this thing's really catching on. Where'd it go, Mike? Um, all that to say, the idea, uh, the ideas in Proverbs were truths that had often been shared and distributed over time, sometimes a very long period of time. And this is interesting because even so, followers of Jesus hold these ideas in their written form to be inspired by God and authoritative in that sense. 
So God's involvement is still significant, even though it may have started with some yahoo tousling a dog's ears. Maybe, maybe God's involvement isn't significant in the, the origin of every unique proverb per se, but in the eventual collecting of these ideas together. And this is where the connection to King Solomon becomes noteworthy. You know, Solomon had said about, about this, if you know the story, he said about this enormous task of leading an entire people group, and he was so aware of his shortcomings that he asked God for wisdom. It's in 2 Kings 3, if you like to do your homework. And God gives him wisdom. And then Solomon becomes famous for his wisdom. He's got smarts about leadership and poetry and science and math, even botany, all kinds of stuff. And Solomon understands all of his wisdom to be this divine gift from God. And the book of Proverbs is eventually crafted over time as an embodiment of that divine wisdom, of wisdom that was a gift from God, and not for Solomon alone, but for all of God's people, even though the content therein is human wisdom in a way. It came from a dude. It came from a king. That came from God. And this wisdom often seems to operate in tension or seemingly contradiction with the other books in the Hebrew wisdom literature. So the primary questions posited are all the same. How should I live in the world? Uh, what should I do about evil and injustice in the world? What, what makes for a life well lived? If I do live wisely, what will happen? What will happen if I don't live wisely? And each book seems to offer different answers. So for instance, in Proverbs, it says, the light of the righteous shines brightly, but the lamp of the wicked is snuffed out. But then if we go to Job with that same exact logic, we're in big trouble because Job himself is righteous, blameless, even the text says, and yet horrible, tragic things happen to Job because of the work of the devil. In fact, Job himself actually asks if this line of thinking in Proverbs is true at all. He says, yet how often is the lamp of the wicked snuffed out? How often does calamity come upon them? The fate of God allots in his anger. So wisdom is kind of like, live this way and things will work out. But then wisdom is also like, hey, look, this guy lived this way and things didn't work out. And both are in the same Bible. And what if we go to the third source that we have, uh, Ecclesiastes. If you're still there, turn over to chapter 8. And let's read in verse 14. The teacher writes, there is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. So the author of Ecclesiastes affirms the exception to the rule of Proverbs 13. And, they, and they're exasperated by it. Sometimes it works, often it doesn't. And it drives Job, as we talked about a few weeks ago, to question God's goodness and God's character. And it drives the author of Ecclesiastes to despair. And all three viewpoints are in the same Bible, in the same collection of wisdom literature even. And this doesn't imply a necessary contradiction. Uh, often the rule of Proverbs rings true, you know, but, but not always. Ideas now translated or updated, updated in our language, you know, foolish spenders sometimes squander their money and they end up with tons of credit card debt or something like that. Yeah, that's often true. Wise people often save their money and, and they often do okay. Yeah, those things are often true. Not always, but as a general rule, sure. The wrestling match between each of the three views in any given season of our lives can be addressed by the robust picture that the three books offer together. Different books for different times sort of thing. In, in Jewish thought, this is something called a dialogical view of truth and reality. If you read ancient Jewish writings like the Mishnah or the Talmud, you'll find a section on, say, something like the Sabbath. And it'll be immediately followed by 
about 50 different perspectives on the Sabbath by 50 different rabbis, many of them completely different in their understanding and approach on the subject, and sometimes they'll pick on one another for, oh, this rabbi doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm Rabbi Hillel, and I know the right approach to the Sabbath. So there seems to be this understanding in Jewish tradition that things are often more complex than simplistic statements and assumptions allow for. So in our own, think about this, in our own authoritative scriptures, we have books that require the reader to hold them in tension and allow them to nuance each other. And together, all put together, they offer a sophisticated account of human existence. Separately, the perspective is often too narrow. Um, Scholar Christopher Wright puts it this way, the most challenging difference between the wisdom writings and the rest of the Old Testament arises when wisdom authors express doubts about or question the validity of some of the mainline affirmations of other parts of the Bible. And yet, This is precisely the purpose of this material in the canon of Scripture, to compel us to an honest faith that's willing to acknowledge the presence of doubts we cannot dismiss and questions we cannot always answer given our human limitations. So there seems to be a sort of dynamic at work here. So imagine Moses in Deuteronomy. He he describes the way that obedience to Yahweh leads to blessing and it leads to abundance in the land, but disobedience to Yahweh will invite destruction and ruin. And this generally reliable wisdom gets carried over into the Proverbs. But then Job and Ecclesiastes draw the reader's attention to the elephant in the room. What about when it doesn't work that way? What about the uniquely awful circumstances for which we all have no shelf or no category? And it doesn't imply that God isn't real or that he isn't faithful or that he isn't good. But it does imply that life is complex, and these books work to expand our paradigm, allowing for more complexity and more ambiguity when we approach the Scriptures in our own life experience. You know, we live and operate within this war-torn world where, as we've discussed in detail in previous weeks, what God wants and wills for the world doesn't always come to pass in the here and now. Satan and the powers of evil run amok in God's good creation, and it forces us to create a broader understanding of the Scriptures as a whole, more than simply this idea of golden tablets that fell from the sky, and we can just read plainly and understand without any nuance or study or detailed thought of any kind, because built into Scripture itself is the opportunity to question and to wrestle with the Scriptures. So there's this authoritative narrative about God's work in human history. But then in our individual stories and experiences, there's this complicated dynamic that defies simplistic categorization. So how do you read and apply the authority of Proverbs one week and Ecclesiastes two weeks later? Uh, I read this week a Jewish professor who said, you Christians see the Bible as a story to be proclaimed, and we Jews see it as a problem to be solved. Uh, and if you get, have you guys heard this, like, a, I'm going to call it a fundamentalist slogan, but it's this popular slogan, the, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. And uh, in, its, in its resolute obedience to the text, that formula is, is wonderful on paper. I, I, honestly, I wish I could find more uh, resolve in young disciples of Jesus today to, to submit to the authority of the Scriptures. But it is missing one very crucial ingredient in that sort of narrow formula. The Bible says it, I interpret it, I believe it, 
that settles it. You know, the, the art and science of reading the scriptures is something called hermeneutics. And the basic foundation for hermeneutics is a three-step process. Revelation, what does the text say? Interpretation, what does the text mean? And then finally, application. How do we respond to what the text has been found to mean? And a fundamentalist reading of the scriptures blurs the line between the first two steps, you know, revelation and interpretation. If you've ever been in a disagreement with a, a fundamentalist or someone that sort of has fundamentalist tendencies... Um, over something like uh, something divisive, like the age of the earth or what the book of Revelation means. You've probably been in a position where someone might simply point at the text and say, but the Bible says. Uh, because for many, there's this tremendous difficulty or even worse, an, an outright unwillingness to draw a distinction between what the text says and that person's particular reading of the text. And no, it's not because, I don't think, because they're so hardcore, they're just willing to take it at face value. Um, you know, because notice most of these folks haven't cut out their eyeball if they've ever lusted as Jesus taught, or they haven't stoned their disobedient children as the Torah teaches, and they, they haven't, they, you know, looked around for trees that clap their hands like they read in the Psalms of what the Bible says, you know. But something that begins as wonderful, and honestly, hear me on this, uh, something that begins as wonderful, which is a wild passionate devotion to the text, to live it out, to read it and obey it, can sometimes, not always, but sometimes become an obstinate kind of idolatry to one particular opinion on the text. And, you know, if we should be humbled by this thing that we're reading. We're reading 66 different books with different authors and genres and styles and tones. Some of the genres we don't even know how to translate adequately. Different theology at times, written in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. All language, very few or none of us read or speak at all. Uh, two or three millennia ago in the Middle East and in Africa where we don't live at all. And when you open your Bible, you step into this strange alien world that requires context and humility and, and work. Now, the central message and the story of the scriptures is quite wonderfully simple. Everything you need to know about God's redeeming of the universe in Jesus of Nazareth is there for you. No Mensa membership required, uh, no, no graduate degree or anything like that. But the deeper you go, the more complex things become. And, and we are, as disciples of Jesus, asked to go deeper by our teacher. And that requires nuance. And it requires a certain amount of uh, acumen, intelligence to read the Bible well. Of course, you don't need a PhD, you don't need a seminary degree to follow Jesus, but understanding the complexity of this ancient library of writings does ask more than a simple surface level reading of the text. It takes skill and nuance and, and perhaps most importantly, it takes humility and an open mind. And we can do this. It's not beyond our grasp. I think it has more to do with the willingness to learn than it does access to a seminary library. As again, the central story of the scriptures is beautifully within even the simplest grasp. And the more we explore, the more we humble ourselves in a posture to learn. I love the way that some people will balk at this idea that there are times in our readings of the Bible that the text might not say what it seems to be saying from a superficial reading, as if the idea of an interpretation might be complicated or blasphemous. And I just think, we're already reading a translation. <laughs> we're, we're already, in a sense, one step removed from what it actually says, if you want to be all black and white about it. In fact, I'd always insist, as I myself had been taught to read at least 
four or so different translations when you sit down to study the Bible, a task of, of studying that will force you to go, oh, wait a minute, well, what the heck does it say? Because everyone seems to be getting something a little bit different. And the need for nuance is on full display when you approach the wisdom literature because the message that we find in these three books is often oblique. As a general rule, life in the world often works out this way. So live this way. Other times, it doesn't. Even so, live this way. Thursday uh, morning, Abby and I uh, were at uh, an appointment with her midwife, and I kept laughing at how amorphous everything sounds all the time. She's like, well, you know, your first baby was early, so this one will probably be early too, unless it's not, which it might not be, so who knows. And then she's like, well, uh, you know, second babies are always bigger for sure, um, except when they're not. And, uh, and this is a girl. Your first one was a boy. Girls are always smaller, except sometimes they're bigger. And, uh, and then, uh, she, was, she was trying to explain, you know, like when to, when to be ready to come in and all that stuff. And she's like, well, you know, as a general rule, um, you want to come in when you can no longer talk through your contractions is what they say, these painful painful things that happen when you're in labor. If you can still talk through them, no big deal. Don't worry about it. Don't come in. We're like, oh, that's weird because last time she talked through the contractions all the way up to the very end of it. She was just sitting there like drinking a Slurpee or something. And I was like, are you feeling this? Is anything going on? Yeah, I'm fine. Well, bloop, there's a baby. So, um, and then she goes, oh yeah, well, I don't know then. Maybe just come in whenever. <laughs> so I thought, man, why not just shrug and say, who the heck knows? What are we doing here? Just call us when you think you're going to have a baby, I guess. So here's the thing. Uh, even so, the exception to the rule does not negate the methodology. What I mean is that living wisely is not a better way to live because it always leads to a happier, longer life full of flourishing. To live simply uh, or to live according to God's wisdom is a better way to live simply because it's living according to God's wisdom. So take the teachings of Jesus as further indication of this. Turn all the way over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. One more time. Turn to Matthew chapter 7 in the New Testament. Um, in, in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, uh, Matthew's biography of Jesus, they, they collect the core teachings of this incredible, divisive, first century rabbi. And Jesus, the teacher here, offers his fascinating take on the best way to be human, from sexuality to money to anger, reconciliation, judgment, forgiveness, and on and on down the list. And then as Jesus' great collection of core teachings draws to a close, he says this in Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So fascinating. So for Jesus... One, it's not enough to know his teaching. The teaching has to be practiced. And this is wisdom. But not only that, Jesus says that the person who uh, puts his teachings into practice is like someone who builds this sturdy house that won't fall down. So it's, it's something to do with uh, the promise of the future and longevity in this wisdom. The person who doesn't do these things, who... Uh, who, who hears the teachings but doesn't put them in practice. It's like some dummy who builds his house on sand. You know, who does that? It's like uh, whoever's grabbing this dog by the ears, this dummy who's building his house on the sand. Uh, their house is going to fall down. So it's a foolish way to live and be, be human. So you think, okay, 
Got it. Teachings applied, things go well. House doesn't fall down. Teachings heard but not applied, things will go poorly. House falls down. Seems like a simple enough, simple enough formula. And then you're thinking, but wait, later on Jesus goes on to say things like this. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And you're like, wait, 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 what? I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. And you're like, wait, wait, <laughs> what happened to all the sturdy house business, Jesus? What happened to all that stuff about the house not falling down, you know? And then you start to wrap your head around this hilariously upside-down nature of God's kingdom where the rich and the powerful and the famous are the lowest on the totem pole and those at the bottom of the social ladder are treated like royalty where little children outsmart, outsmart wise old sages and where finding real life means losing your old life and where being rich looks like being poor and being poor looks like being rich. And it's in all this that something comes into focus and you start to think, Oh, I get it. It's not a better life that I'm after in the sense of how I once imagined a better life with safety and security and the American dream. It's a better life according to Jesus, which doesn't promise any of those things. And it's certainly not easier at all. And this is why I think that we need all three sages. The optimistic, pragmatic wisdom of Proverbs, the, the brutally honest frustration of Ecclesiastes, and the worn down but wiser experience of Job. There's a sage for every season of life, and there are times when any given sage, apart from the other, will speak to our lives with too narrow a paradigm. Often Proverbs reads like this down-to-earth reinforcement of common sense. Um, when I worked through the book earlier this month uh, for the umpteenth time or whatever, according to the reading plan, I was struck by how profound some of the most simple passages about conflict and broken relationships and what it's like to work with someone who doesn't want to work with you, uh, how, how much they resonated with me this time around. I myself, um, in my life right now, I'm navigating a very difficult, fractured relationship with a long-term friend. And I found myself being like, whoa, this is incredible. How This was so boring last time. How's it so amazing this time? And other times, the, the seemingly nihilistic refrains of Ecclesiastes act as a sort of solidarity when we look out at the chaotic senselessness of death, death and despair and injustice in the world around us. And we find ourselves echoing the sentiment of the teacher and saying, this is absurd. And both are true and both are complicated. So I have this uh, vivid memory. When I was seven years old, as a kid, uh, I obsessed over a great many things. I have, a, you know, one of those personalities. And a lot of them were movies, obsessed with a lot of different movies. One of them was uh, Joe Dante's Gremlins, you know, deeply obsessed with Gremlins. And then the 1990 sequel, Gremlins 2. So my dad had taken Patrick and myself to the movies to see Gremlins 2 in 1990. It was a huge moment for me in my life. I begged and begged for weeks. He's like, all right, we'll go see the dang movie. And then uh, afterward, I was so amped up on how amazing this experience that had been that I asked if I could order the novelization, the movie novelization from a troll book order. Did you guys have troll book orders? Does anyone? Someone said, yeah. You did? Troll book orders? They were great. If you know, they were like these tissue-thin sheets of paper with all kinds of pictures of cool books, and you could write in what you wanted on the back, mail it in the mail, and then the book would come to you. It was incredible. It's like a proto-Amazon. I don't know if they still exist. It's probably a website anymore. But anyway, they, uh, I was like, look, there's a novelization of Gremlins 2. I'm seven years old at this point. I sent off. It came in the mail six weeks later, six to eight weeks later is what it always took back then. And... Um, 
uh, this was going to be like this monumental, ta uh, unfathomable 200 plus pages for me at the time. And it was Gremlin, so it was going to be worth it. And there's no pictures. This is my first big book. So it took me a while. It was, the first, uh, it was the first novel that I ever read. And I loved the thing. I loved the experience of it taking forever and how complicated it was to remember and keep up with all these characters as a seven-year-old. And I have this vivid memory of riding to school, you know, during the many weeks that I was reading this thing every day. And I had my book in the bag. My dad was driving me. And he said, hey, man, I'm proud of you for reading that thing. And I was like, you're proud of me for reading Gremlins too? Why? What is it about? You like Gremlins too, as much as I do? And he was like, no, no, not, not for that. It's because books will make you smarter. And I, that like rocked my world. I was like, what? I had no idea. No one told me this. This is... <laughs> Who, do you know about this? Who else knows about this? And it, uh, for years, I, I had this image in my mind that uh, of reading books was something like actual calories, you know, for fattening your brain, as if every single book I read produced some kind of absolutely quantifiable, you know, increase in my intellect. It's like brain push-ups or something like that. And uh, then, of course, I got older, and I realized that's not exactly how books work. You know, I still love to read books, but I've learned that Many books are totally inconsequential. I don't remember lots of them that I read, and I suspect some have made me dumber. But, you know, when I realized that, I didn't stop and think, oh, man, my dad was totally lying to me. He sold me this line. Uh, of course not. That's not the case at all. His, his proverb rings absolutely true when you assume the proper nuance and context. So it strikes me as terribly appropriate that the proverbs are framed as the wisdom of a parent to their child. And at the heart of the wisdom literature is this dynamic and complex understanding of what it means to be human. So there's no need to dismiss one book in favor of the other, to write one off as fanciful in light of a more realistically pessimistic observation that comes before or after it. You know, it's, it's like the teachings of Jesus. They point us together to a better way to be human, not an easier way, not without exception to the rule and not always guaranteed in their promise to yield happy outcomes, and yet they offer wisdom nonetheless. And really, understanding this, I think, shines such a helpful light on our understanding of what the Bible is as an authority. Because, make no mistake, and I know many of us don't like to hear this, but to live under the authority of the Scriptures is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. There's absolutely no way around that. To say that Jesus' view of the Scriptures is very high, is the understatement of a lifetime. And yet, we can't get to the authority of the text lazily or with an unwillingness to abandon preconceived notions about what the text might say. Um, J.I. Packer described the way that we submission to the Bible's authority as an advanced commitment to receive as truth from God all that Scripture is found on inspection actually to teach. And I love that thoughtful wording, because notice he simply didn't say an advanced commitment to receive his truth from God, all that Scripture teaches. Rather, what upon inspection the Scriptures are found to actually teach. So to end tonight, I think that the wisdom literature as a whole is drawing our attention to this fascinating reality. When we read Proverbs, something like the fear of Yahweh adds length to life, but the, year of the, wicked, uh, the years of the wicked are cut short. And then you consider for a moment the amount of people that you've known who loved God deeply, who followed Jesus well, and yet died young for some reason. Or the seemingly wicked murderers 
and politicians, you know, I can think of several or one in particular who have coasted into old age, fat and happy and rich. And it isn't that you pause and reflect and conclude, well, this proverb is simply not true at all. Instead, you think, yeah, that, that is often true. There's wisdom here. To follow after the way of Jesus makes for a life well lived, and to reject the way of Jesus leads to death. And when you read Ecclesiastes, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness, and you consider for a moment the truth that you found in Proverbs earlier, you don't dismiss the latter for the former and say, man, this guy's a bummer, this teacher fellow. He has no idea what he's talking about. I just read in Proverbs something utterly different. I'll stick with Proverbs, thank you very much. Instead, you think, oh, yeah, this is often true as well. There's wisdom here. Life can often seem random and absurd. There is a time and a place for the reality of both and to read each within the context of the greater story of the scriptures. And you don't have to be a professor or a seminary graduate to do this. You just have to care enough to try, really. And I think you try in, in two ways to end tonight. One is simply to read the scriptures, to read more of the scriptures as a whole. Spend more time with the Bible than a paragraph every week or two, or more than a few verses from a devotional book, or more than a dumb Instagram feed with waterfalls and sunsets and then some text stripped of its context, you know. You don't need hours of time each day. Maybe just cut out the extra Netflix show that you're watching or an episode from it. I don't know how you people watch all these things. Or or maybe cut back on the time on the phone, or whatever it is, scale back on something and read. Every single day, read the scriptures. And secondly, the way that I think you embrace the dynamic portrait that the scriptures are is to read better. So not just skimming and then out the door, not, not just you got your time in and you can check it off a list, but with patience and with prayer when you make time to actually listen to the Holy Spirit when you read, when you read through it line by line slowly and meditate on what they, and ask God, what, what does this mean? What the heck am I getting at? Crack a book sometime. <laughs> they make you smarter. See, it's like the proverb gets passed on and on and on. The scriptures, the scriptures that you base your life on are worth more than a once-over, are worth more than a throw-together. And if this is the thing that you'd like to do to follow after the way of Jesus, then it would be an absurd thing to do that and base your life on a book that you've never read all the way or don't really understand at all. It's a difference between ambiguity and being like, wow, there's a lot in here I don't get, and be like, oh, man, that thing is so weird. I've never read a single page in it, and I won't start now. But the more and more that you come to the Scriptures with your heart and your mind open, prepared to receive wisdom that upon inspection, the scriptures are actually found to teach. The more and more you do this, the more the Spirit of God can form us as we grow in our knowledge and our understanding of the way of Jesus. That's, as the words of a father spoken to a child, listen, my child, to your parents' instruction. Let's pray.